The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning. Well, employee dishonesty and fraud has its cost. Successful employers recognize that employees fraud, employee fraud is one of the most expensive and harmful challenges they face, and it often cripples a company's financial resources. So today we're going to talk about identifying employee misconduct and steps an employer can take to protect their businesses. Today's guest, Eugene Ferraro, a board-certified um, individual in security management um, through As Is International, a human resources management certified person and a recognized certified fraud examiner is going to provide a look at this enemy within detecting and investigating employee fraud. Hi, Jean. Hi, Francie. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for being with me. My pleasure. Let me tell you about Jean. Um, Eugene Ferraro is Chief Executive Officer and Founder of Business Controls Incorporated based in Colorado. He is a specialist in investigating employee dishonesty, substance abuse, and workplace criminal activity. And he's conducted thousands and thousands of investigations for employers. He's a former military pilot, an intelligence officer, a graduate of the Naval Justice School. He also holds a bachelor's from Florida Institute of Technology. He's authored eight books. One is Undercover Investigations in the Workplace, and he just completed Investigations in the Workplace. He is board certified, as I mentioned, by As As Is International, and he served as the chair of the Workplace Substance Abuse Council of ASIS, is a certified fraud examiner, which is a designation of CFE. He holds a professional certified investigator, which is a PCI designation, is a faculty member for Association of Certified Fraud Examiners, and on top of all of that, he's currently the president of the National Council of Investigating Security Services, known as NCISS, a 35-year-old professional trade association representing private investigators and security professionals with both elected and government officials in Washington, D.C. So there's a couple of things, Jean, from my introduction that our listeners might be interested in. First, what is the CFE? Well, thank you, Francie. Um, The Association of Certified Fraud Examiners um, is one of the premier associations bringing together professionals with an interest in fraud prevention. Mm -hmm. Um, Currently, there's about 40,000 members worldwide. 40,000? 40,000 members. And uh, its certification, which it awards to qualified individuals, is the Certified Fraud Examiner designation. 
Um, in order to obtain that designation, one requires expertise and uh, managerial experience in the world of fraud examination and investigation, as well as pa- passing a certification exam. It's okay. rigorous, it's demanding, um, but a, a highly regarded uh, designation. And then what about uh, a, as is international, how do you get certified, which I guess is a PCI designation? That, that's correct. There's two certifications um, that I hold through ASIS International, formerly the American Society for Industrial Security. ASIS is probably the oldest uh, security associate or association of security professionals in the United States, formed uh, over 55 years ago. Its uh, certification, um, uh, it certifies professionals in several areas. Um, two of those uh, include the Board Certification in Security Management, the CPP designation, which I hold, and the Professional Certified Investigator designation for people like you and I um, who principally spend most of our life in the, in the world of investigation. And that requires some study, um, taking a test? Yes, that's correct. Like most certifications, the ASIS um, certifications require or have minimum requirements of uh, time in the trade, time in the industry, managerial experience, um, specific expertise relative to the designation, and, of course, a certification exam. Interesting. And then, Gene, how did you get started in private investigation? How in the world did you become a private investigator? Well, as you mentioned in my introduction, I'm a former military officer and a graduate of the Naval Justice School. I was a prosecutor in the United States Marine Corps, Um, and when I completed my military obligation, I found my way into the private sector and, um, was introduced to an investigator in California who offered me a job. I worked with him for a short while and eventually found my way to the firm of Kraut and Schneider, which still exists in Southern California. Kraut and Schneider had been established in 1927, and in the early 1980s, when I joined the firm, It was at that time America had discovered substance abuse in the workplace. And we had the uh, fortune to be in the forefront of that uh, effort to to snuff out substance abuse in the workplace and uh, deal with it for employers around the country. So I cut my teeth uh, with Kraut and Schneider. Eventually, I left and formed my own firm, Business Controls, now headquartered in Denver, Colorado, but for 28 years, I've specialized in the investigation of employee misconduct, including things such as fraud, white-collar crime, substance abuse, harassment, discrimination, etc. And that's really where I live today, investigating uh, uh, those who commit crimes against their uh, employer, both uh, 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 from the perspective of employee misconduct as well as uh, perpetrated by outsiders. Well, since you started in California, Gene, could you tell our listeners what the licensing requirements are for a private investigator in California? Sure. Uh, I am, in fact, licensed in California as as well as several other states. California has one of the more rigorous uh, requirements for licensing, which includes 6,000 hours of experience. It has to be certified experience where where one's former employers have to certify that, which is approximately um, uh, three years of uh, on-the-job experience with training, as well as a clean criminal record and passing, once again, an exam. It's rigorous, it's demanding, 
um, but it keeps those who are less than qualified or should not be uh, investigators out of the industry. And uh, organizations like the California Association of Licensed Investigators does a very good job policing the industry and ensuring that those do, that do practice and offer services in California are indeed licensed. And what is the situation in Colorado? Well, very unfortunately, Francie, we haven't any licensing in, in uh, uh, Colorado for professional investigators. Although um, Colorado was one of the first states to have licensing, uh, was one of the first bills passed by the state legislature when the state became um, a member of the union in 1876. Wow. However, in 19... Yes, imagine that, 1876. Mm -hmm. However, that law was struck down in 1975 um, as a a result of an ambiguity. Since then, Colorado has not had any uh, licensing for investigators and remains one of the few uh, states in the union that don't. It's unfortunate because today, Colorado, because of its uh, uh, popularity, the lifestyle it offers its residents, the low taxes we enjoy, the affordable housing and job opportunities attracts many people. And unfortunately, it also attracts those who lose their licenses or are unable to be licensed elsewhere. And we have a terrible problem with it. We've been working on it for several years. The State Association, the Professional Private Investigators Association of Colorado, of which I am a longtime member, has worked diligently in convincing the state to adopt a new licensing law. And we're in the process right now of bringing a bill forward in the new uh, 2011 legislature. And we're, we have our fingers crossed that uh, this time the bill will pass. But <clears throat> Colorado is a conservative state. It's uh, anti-regulation, pro-business, and for some time the lawmakers have decided that the industry doesn't need to be regulated. Well, since we're on this topic, um, if there are listeners who want to support the effort in Colorado to get licensing for private investigators there, who would they contact? Well, the best place to to gather information about uh, uh, licensing in Colorado is through the uh, State Association website, and that's the PPIAC, PPIAC PPIAC.org. The Professional Private Investigators Association um, has a uh, a host of, uh, or, or a collection of information on the topic on its website. In fact, right now, we're petitioning the Department of Regulatory Agencies, which oversees licensing of all professions in the state, and we're requesting letters from interested parties and investigators like you and me to let the state know that licensing is important to us. Good, good, very good. Uh, I'm sure that there are people listening that would like to support the Colorado license or Colorado investigators in that effort. We'd appreciate it. Great. All right, so let's talk about um, detecting and investigating play fraud. So, Gene, uh, how is fraud most often revealed? Through what source? Well, that's an interesting uh, 
question, and it may surprise our listeners, that most fraud is identified or revealed by a tipster. That is, an informant whistleblower who comes forward and reveals a problem. It's quite it's counterintuitive. Most would think that things like internal audit or external audit, which publicly traded companies spend millions, if not billions of dollars on annually to ensure that their financials are clean and free of fraud, those methods detect very little fraud, when in fact the more fraud is identified by way of chance than um, internal or external audit. But the principal method in which fraud is revealed is through a tipster. About 50% of all fraud is uncovered by someone coming forward, someone who is concerned um, and provides the employer or the authorities information. And you have some statistics on uh, you, you just gave 50%, but you have some statistics on other er, other ways fraud is notified of, uh, to the business. Yeah. Um, as I mentioned, this, the, the, the next most common means of detecting fraud is by chance. The uh, bespeckled bookkeeper who has not taken a vacation suddenly fa- falls ill, leaves her post, and her replacement finds a fraud that may have gone on for years. So about uh, something on the order of 20% to 30% of all fraud is identified by chance, happenstance. Mm -hmm. Internal audit accounts for about 20%. That is, the organization seeks it out and finds it itself, and only 9% is found by external audit. Rather interesting, because that's where most of the money is spent, external audit. Sure. Sure. And things like shoplifting and other external people loading up merchandise from the back door, that kind of burglaries, that kind of thing. Sure. Yeah. Okay. And then you, um, you know, you have these statistics because your company provides a hotline program for many, many businesses across the globe, correct? That that is correct. Uh, in addition to providing professional services in the form of uh, 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 loss prevention consulting and investigations, like we mentioned, our firm also provides employee and school place hotlines. Um, we service approximately twenty two thousand client locations in one hundred and thirty countries in one hundred and seventy languages, twenty four seven. So we have. Uh, a wealth of information that flows through our organization, helping organ- other organizations address things like fraud. We receive about 61,000 um, reports per month, and those reports are instantaneously distributed to designated recipient in our client organizations. Okay. What's interesting, though, um, is the vast majority of Tipsters, those people making reports for whatever for for, for whatever uh, issue concerns them, only a small fraction of them actually request anonymity. In fact, okay. about seventy percent. Let, let me just interrupt here. We need to take a break. I'm speaking with yep. private investigator Gene Ferraro about detecting and investigating employee fraud. Back in a couple minutes. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! 
If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you are listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific. Do you need directions to solid financial future? If so, the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern, for the Money Answer Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. My guest is Jane Ferraro, workplace fraud expert and author of several books. Uh, Jean, you were just saying that uh, when you're talking about tipsters and an- anonymity. Yes. Yeah, it probably would surprise uh, our listeners that most people who provide tips by means of hotlines like those provided by my organization, in fact, don't request anonymity. Um, a good portion of them, about 70%, 
um, feel comfortable enough and confident enough in the information that they're providing that they identify themselves. What's also very interesting is that about one-half of those who reveal their identity when making a tip or tip report ask that they be identified to the individual on whom they're reporting upon. Isn't that amazing? That is amazing. That's very interesting. And by revealing their identity and going as far as tell, asking that they be identified to the person they're reporting upon increases the credibility of the allegation, giving the employer more confidence to undertake an investigation and, and examine the the allegation. Sure. Well, do any kind of monetary incentives increase the volume or the quality? No, they don't. Again, it's somewhat counterintuitive. Um, we've done quite a bit of research in this area. Our system um, as a matter of practice, does not provide rewards or monetary incentives. Now, there are programs that do, and probably for our listeners, um, many of the government programs, the IRS, for example, has, has a, a tip line in which uh, reporting uh, income tax evasion or fraud on the part of a taxpayer um, can result in a 10% uh, reward to the tipster. We found that offering uh, a monetary incentive does not increase the quality or quantity of tips. Mm -hmm. I think really what uh, uh, ought to be done is the organization that's contemplating using a tip line is ensure that its culture is properly aligned and that the employees are, 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 are trusting of management. And that, that takes time to develop that type of relationship. Sure. You know, most people want to be honest. Most people are honest. And like uh, like us in the profession, um, it, 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 it's annoying and demoralizing to work with people who are committing fraud or other crimes while at work. I see. And what would you say is the biggest abuse of employee fraud? Well, the number one thing stolen by employees is time. Um, no surprise, whether it's playing games on one's computer, exchanging personal emails, shopping, or in the worst case, I suppose, viewing pornography. Employees, um, while at work, being paid for their time, are not fulfilling their obligation to their employer. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when we talk about fraud, <clears throat> I think it's essential that we, we, we dissect this, this, this fuzzy thing called fraud and examine the different uh, Categories. The first category, of which theft of time would include, are asset misappropriations. These are schemes um, and, and such, which are designed to uh, uh, confiscate, take, or steal assets belonging to the organization. Most often when we think of fraud, we think of it as a financial crime. Mm -hmm. But, as mentioned, the theft of time is also a form of fraud. So asset misappropriation is the largest category, and about 90% of all frauds involve some form of asset misappropriation. The second category, less common, are fraudulent statements. And Enron squarely fell into this category. In fact, some of the largest frauds perpetrated, whether it's Bernie Madoff, Enron, or the likes of, uh, of those um, uh, uh, large-scale and well-known frauds, involve some sort of uh, a statement um, uh, or fraudulent statements, making financial misrepresentations either to investors, shareholders, 
um, or others. The third category is corruption, which includes things like bribery, extortion, bid rigging, and sweetheart deals. We see this less in the public sector, more common um, to the public sector, where someone on the inside rigs a bid or lets a contract to a friend or someone else for some benefit to themselves, for example, a kickback. I think our listeners have probably seen more fraud in the last couple of three years than they ever wanted to know. Yeah, from all kinds uh, of uh, from all kinds of locations. Yeah, well, very true. Uh, uh, fraud seems to be on an increase. The Association of Certified Fraud Examiners asserts that about one to three percent of the total economic output. Um, is lost as a result of fraud. And to put a number to that, you're looking at something on the order of 600 to $800 billion a year lost because of fraud. It's a big problem, and it's expensive. Well, Gene, I lo- you, you provided me a quote from Michael Milken that yeah. I just love. And he says, $10 million here, $10 million there. Pretty soon we're talking real money. Yeah, Michael Milken was an interesting character. Um, and I should not speak of him in the past tense. He's still alive. He's a, he's a professor at UCLA in Southern California in the School of Economics. Michael Milken, uh, in the 1980s, became known as the junk bond king. And uh, working for the firm Drexel Barnum, as an employee, his best year, including direct compensation at, in the form of wages and bonus, was $540 million. That was his pay in one year. And for those that are listening and don't have a calculator in front of them, that's about $1.5 million a day, seven days a week. It's amazing. Yeah. Shameful. He became so, so great that he began to sell bonds that didn't exist. Right. So much like the Ponzi scheme perpetrated by Bernie Madoff, uh, he was selling things and uh, receiving commissions on things that uh, just didn't uh, exist. So You've done so much research on and had so much experience on this area, Gene. Why is it employees steal? Well, I think there's a variety of reasons that uh, people steal. I think, you know, the more the the common uh, reasons that come to mind are the real or perceived need, uh, uh, a perception of entitlement, distorted values and judgment or some sort of uh, psychological fulfillment. But the real reason I've found that people steal um, and commit fraud in the workplace is because they have the sense or perception that the employer simply doesn't care. When I visit a location um, at the request of a client to investigate any matter, one of the first places I go is drive to, to, to the facility and drive around the employee parking lot. I look to see... If there if there is a fret, if there's a fence, if there are uh, 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 abandoned cars in the parking lot, if there is trash, if the building is maintained, the grounds are kept. Doing uh, uh, or, or treating the employees properly, and treating the employer's property properly by the employer, communicates that the employer cares. When we see a facility that's in disrepair, it's dirty. Employees don't feel safe coming into or out of the building. The restrooms are dirty. It sends a message to employees that the employer doesn't care. Mm -hmm. And think about it. How could we expect our employees to do the right thing and be honest if they think they're not being treated right? Sure, that makes sense. Well, there's a number of myths that are associated with why people steal, aren't there? 
Yep. <clears throat> there are some very common myths, in fact. Um, one of the most common and largely perpetrated by the popular media is that only the needy and greedy steal. People that <clears throat> need the money who are desperate. You know, in these economic times, it, it's easy to sympathize with those who, who steal um, or steal from their employer because of a, a, a financial hardship. But it's actually untrue. When we take cases like Milk, Michael Milken or Bernie Madoff, what drove these people? Kenneth Lay, in the case of Enron. These were wealthy, well-to-do people who had all of the resources and luxuries of life, yet they decided to commit fraud. Another common myth is the, is the claim that good policies and procedures are good enough to catch wrongdoers. No, an employer has to have an affirmative plan of action. They have to do certain things in order to prevent fraud in the first place. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But one of those uh, things is pre-employment screening. Mm -hmm. The last, I guess, <clears throat> uh, myth um, is that uh, many people believe that prosecution is an effective deterrent. And I tell my clients all the time that it's not. Employee prosecution is expensive and time-consuming. It's often disappointing. What's more, only 1% of all court-ordered restitution is ever paid. Isn't that amazing? That is amazing. That really is amazing. But, and prosecution doesn't set an atmosphere at, at the workplace that this, people shouldn't be acting this way. Yeah, well, in order for fraud to take place, or for that matter, any criminal activity in, in, in the workplace, three things are necessary to exist. Number one, you have to have a, a perpetrator who has a perceived need. Whether real or imagined, there's a perception that uh, by committing the crime in question, that uh, it, it uh, is useful or beneficial to the individual. The next is rationalization, that the risk of being caught, humiliated, um, or detected <clears throat> outweighs the, uh, uh, or excuse me, uh, the benefits outweigh uh, those things. And last okay, but not that, least, is the opportunity. Gene, just a second. Um, Private investigator Gene Ferraro, president of the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, who is also an expert on addressing employee misconduct, is discussing the myths regarding employee misconduct and employee fraud. Right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. 
NCISS, and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PIs Declassified. IRB Search is simply the best online data provider for locating people, businesses, and assets. IRB Search gives you strength in numbers. With one click, you can access billions of records. Even with partial information on your subject, IRB Search instantly returns current and past addresses, phone numbers, and more. Call IRB Search today at 1-800-447-2112 to sign up. Mention PIs Declassified and you'll receive a two-week trial of 100 free searches to get started. Call 1-800-447-2112 to find out why IRB Search is simply the best. Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health, and well-being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Feed the mind. Embrace positively. Release the tension. Step out of fear. Host Simran Singh will help you broaden your mind and open your heart toward a greater understanding of how to take charge of your life. 1111 Talk Radio is here every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network. 1111 Talk Radio. Because shift happens. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. The enemy within is our topic with Gene Ferraro. Gene, we were talking about the fraud triangle and opportunities for theft. Can I yeah. pick up from there? Yeah. The, the, the most essential, essential ingredient in the fraud triangle is the availability of opportunity. There has to be opportunity, otherwise a fraud can't take place. In fact, when we investigate fraud, one of the first things we look for are those areas of vulnerability. Where does the opportunity exist? for the employee to exploit the organization's systems and processes and uh, procure assets in which they're not entitled. And Enron is a very good example. Um, Enron was a case uh, where uh, there was a a complete failure of internal controls. They were co-opted by uh, the CFO, the CEO, and others in the organization, the very people that should have been watching after uh, the organization's assets and those of their uh, investor shareholders, and it failed to set the tone at the top. That is, <clears throat> the, the fraud in the case of Enron went to the very uh, uh, highest office. Now, how was that originally uncovered? Well, interestingly enough, it was a uh, female employee uh, by the name of uh, Sharon Wilkins who brought to Kenneth Lay, the then CEO, a 13-page letter revealing uh, what she believed to be a fraud taking place at a number of levels at the organization. Uh, Ken Lay summarily dismissed the letter, but 
in the uh, interest of being a good CEO, referred it to their outside law firm, a firm by the name of Vincent Elkins, who actually undertook an investigation of the letter and reported a clean bill of health back to Ken Lay and the board of directors just three months later. So effectively, her tip, though it went to the top of the organization, was ignored. And didn't she say something like, I wish we'd get caught, we're such a crooked company? Oh, it's absolutely amazing. And for our listeners who are interested in seeing um, uh, that uh, uh, letter, it's available on the web. Sh- simply uh, uh, Google Sharon, that's S-H-E-R-R-O-N Watkins, W-A-T-K-I-N-S, and they can find a copy of that original letter. And she said some remarkable things, things that would just absolutely scare any CEO, um, whether whether alleged by the janitor or, in this case, a high-level vice president. Absolutely amazing. And she was uh, vice president of corporate development, is that right? Yes, that's correct. And at one time, um, she, she was uh, responsible for, for internal controls and whistleblowers. So she knew the system, and she knew how to, uh, uh, the buttons to push to get something done. I think she believed at the time she made her first report that possibly Kenneth Lay was not involved. As it turned out, he had intimate involvement. Amazing. And how much was Enron billed for the audit and the accounting services? Well, interestingly enough, Enron did not only result, or the collapse of Enron result in the loss of 5,000 jobs and about $61 billion in shareholder equity lost. It also resulted in the collapse of Arthur Anderson, the, 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 the largest, most prestigious accounting firm in the United States. In fact, the oldest professional accounting firm um, of the United States. As a result of the fraud perpetrated by uh, uh, the, the executives at Enron, uh, Arthur Anderson also collapsed. They were billing Enron at the time, if you can imagine this, $52 million for audit services, $52 million a year. Incredible. Yeah, it's a million dollars a week. It's hard to believe. What were they doing for that kind of money? Well, <clears throat> U.S. Justice Department ha- had its own ideas and suspected that Arthur Anderson had intimate involvement in the cover-up. And, uh, well, that was never proven for certain. It leaves a lot of questions on how uh, uh, this fraud could have unfolded under the eyes and, and uh, uh, hand of Arthur Anderson. Well, it seems this would be a good segue into what kind of what are you looking for in an organization that indicates to you that they have a problem, they have a huge problem. Okay, well, the typical organization that we find, organizational profile of an organization with this type of problem, um, has three basic uh, commonalities. The first is there is no uh, viable fraud prevention or detection program. Yes, while they have audit and other types of internal functions that ostensibly are designed to detect these types of things, there's nothing that focuses on fraud prevention and detection specifically. Number two is inadequate or ineffective policies. Uh, or policies which are instituted are not followed. The best example is uh, an organization for reimbursable expense requires the actual um, uh, original receipt for the expense to be reimbursed, but makes an exception and, and allows photocopies to be provided instead, allowing the opportunity for multiple 
uh, or excuse me, a, uh, a receipt to be submitted multiple times. The next mm-hmm. is a, a, a focus on problems of really solving underlying issues. It's the type of organization that runs from one uh, brush fire to the next, never stepping back and saying, okay, systemically, what are we doing and how can we address these potential problems? And the last commonality is the, the absence of good quality communications. Take Enron, for example. Sharon Wilkins came forward, but the system did not permit that information from being acted upon. It landed on Kenneth Lay's desk and went barely any further. So those are the types of things that we look for and see in an organization that has these types of problems. This sounds pretty bleak, Gene. So what do you do to prevent all this from happening? Well, there's a couple of things. I tell my clients there's three areas in which they they can focus on in order to prevent uh, fraud, as well as any other type of employee misconduct. Number one is examining their processes and methods around ensuring the quality of employees, i.e. pre-employment screening, drug testing, and doing other types of things to hire the best people. I'm not talking about selecting a certain type of person, a certain person of color, age, or race, but I'm talking about those people that have the highest of standards, that have integrity, and have a track record of, of high performance. Number two is the quality of supervision. Are supervisors properly trained? Are they equipped? And are they empowered by the organization? That is, they're willing to stick their neck out and sometimes make mistakes. Organizations that don't allow supervisors that opportunity run the the risk of denying themselves valuable information relative to a potential fraud. And the last is is the environment in which the organization puts those people. And I'm talking again about the policies and procedures. So for an organization to self-audit, they need only to look at those three areas. What are we doing relative to the quality of people that we're hiring and placing into the organization? How well are our supervisors trained and are they supported? And what's the quality of our procedures and policies? And an employer who falls short in one or more of those areas pretty much can be assured that they're going to have a problem. So how do you ensure you have quality employees? Well, as I I, I briefly mentioned, uh, one of the best tools available is pre-employment screening, doing a thorough background investigation, um, determining if the individual in question has a history of uh, involvement in these types of problems. Have they been prosecuted before? Have they been in trouble? Have they ever been fired for these types of things? So pre-employment screening is one of the most essential uh, ingredients. Okay. All right. And then, of course... Uh, supervisors usually promoted from within, so that connects with the well-trained supervision. Well, and that's that's exactly right. Um, very often we do uh, promote from within. While it's not a bad practice, very often we move a problem along in the organization. It's sort of the proverbial football that's passed from uh, one group in in the organization to the next. And very often, while these people may be qualified, they don't receive the training and support they need from management either. And it's a shame. So what would be some warning signs to identify that there's a problem in a company? There's there's a couple, and, and I would share these with the listeners as the most common. The first is inventory and asset variances. If, if the organization either provides a, a product or sells product, <clears throat> when we find out that we have shortages of one sort, they should be investigated and investigated thoroughly. All too often, organizations, whether it's retail or otherwise, they're just willing to write off that 
in which they call shrink. Unexplained financial irregularities or operational irregularities, documents missing in those types of things, suspicious employee behavior and unusual relationships are also an ingredient. And, of course, always, as in fraud, there's an element of secretiveness. So what kind of mistakes do employers make that uh, allow this kind of an atmosphere to exist? Well, I think there's a, there, there's a couple of things. And again, looking at the cross-section of employers that we've served in the past, I would put right at the top uh, poorly devised policies or policies which aren't enforced. For example, the expense report analogy that I gave just a moment ago. Okay. In addition to that, <clears throat> organizations waiting too long to take action. They, under, they see smoke, but they don't anticipate fire, so they sit and wait, only allowing the problem to accelerate, which is a common problem uh, or char- common characteristic associated with fraud. Start small, grows big, and increases in rapidity. And people don't want to believe that the people they work with are stealing or conducting some kind of employee misconduct. Well, that's right. We, t- we, t- we tend to... Uh, cling to unrealistic expectations and realities. We think the person sitting next to us, that person we've had lunch with for years, um, who, who attended our baby shower, and, and we have a personal relationship with, is not capable of, being of uh, uh, is not capable of committing a fraud or being dishonest. When in fact, if somebody wants to know what a fraudster looks like, look at the person sitting next to them mm-hmm. <clears throat> while at work. Could be anybody. Okay, and then. So there must be a process of intervention, and we're going to need to go to a break here in a second, but maybe you can address that briefly. Sure. Uh, That process of intervention is often called an investigation, and when we come back from our break, I'll go into the essential ingredients of a proper investigation in the workplace. All right. That's the voice of Gene Ferraro. We need to take just a quick break for our sponsors. Stay tuned. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PIs Declassified. Go behind the scenes of what you see, hear, and read on the news. Learn the ins and outs of public relations on Stars of PR with Cindy R. Every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time. Cindy Rakowitz is a Clio Award winner and founder of Rock and Roll Public Relations who wants to share her PR experiences and knowledge with you. Learn how to handle a crisis, deal with celebrities, and become a terrific PR executive. 
Listen to the Stars of PR with Cindy R. every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time here on News Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com. What would you do if you knew that you could not fail? The Dr. Pat Show with Dr. Pat Basile is a radio forum for some of the world's most influential people in the fields of health, wellness, and human potential. Dr. Pat brings together and introduces visionary scientists and futurists, environmentalists, educators, business leaders, inventors, filmmakers, authors, artists, mystics, and healers who inspire and support individual and collective growth and positive cultural shifts. This award-winning radio show empowers the listening community to be the change they want to see in the world. Tune in every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific for the Dr. Pat Show with Dr. Pat Basile, radio to thrive by. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! If you'd like to talk, call us toll free right now at 1 866 472 5787. 1 866 472 5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Workplace investigator and private investigator Gene Ferraro has been discussing the subject of detecting and investigating employee fraud. So let's jump right into the investigation part, Gene. Sure, Francie. Uh, you know, when all things fail, the system uh, doesn't detect uh, fraud or prevent it. Uh, investigations are necessary. Today we call that the process of investigation, and it's a useful tool. And let me very briefly describe the essential elements of the typical investigation. There's actually five components. The first is the planning and preparation phase, sort of doing the things that we're doing right now, talking about the problem, how might it have occurred, who could be responsible, and where do we begin um, our, our effort. The next phase of the investigation is the information gathering phase, the actual collection of information, which I'll come back to in just a moment. The third phase is what we call the verification analysis phase, and this is the interviewing of those people most involved. And for employers' purposes, the principal reason for interviewing those people is not only to obtain their side of the story and find out what took place, but also to obtain an admission. And it is based upon those admissions that an employer can decide corrective action or discipline when necessary. Okay. The fourth phase is the disbursement of disciplinary and or corrective action. This is normally not performed by the investigator, but someone else in the organization, for example, human resources. And then finally, prevention and education. How did this thing take place, and what can the organization do to prevent it? So that is the process that generally unfolds. Okay. And is, uh, is there a particular standard of proof that you need for um, pursuing an investigation like this? Yeah, there is. Uh, it, it, it may surprise people, but the standard of proof is quite different than that for um, uh, criminal prosecution. Criminal prosecution, the standard of proof is beyond a reasonable doubt. For employee discipline, it's a mere good-faith investigation, reasonable conclusion. In fact, there's very good case law in states like California where the employer undertook an investigation and ultimately the disciplined the wrong employee. But because the investigation uh, was conducted in good faith, 
and in this particular instance, the employee in question did not cooperate with the employer's investigation and refused to be interviewed. The employer disciplined them, them, and it turned out to be the wrong person. The courts upheld the employer's decision because they fulfilled their obligation of a good-faith investigation, reasonable conclusion. So it's a fairly low threshold, but an important one to consider. And you, there certain, must be certain uh, methods of investigation that you use to ferret out this um, this misconduct. Yeah, there there are. When we boil down all of the types of things that we can do, it really falls into a, a relatively small group. We have things like what we call physical surveillance, watching people, places, and things. Electronic surveillance using some form of technology, whether it's a hidden camera, the ability to monitor uh, computer activity. It's using technology to conduct the investigation. Research and audit is the examination of both internal and external records to the organization. Forensic analysis using science. Of course, something I mentioned already was interviewing. And last but not least is undercover investigation. So the obligation for the uh, investigative team is to pick and choose the right methods of investigation and combine them properly to obtain the uh, desired results. Well, this sounds like it could be, um, you mentioned lawsuit, fraught with litigation. How do you avoid that? Well, one of the uh, ways uh, litigation is, is avoided is follow organizational policy. And to my clients who say, well, we don't have a policy, well, there's an opportunity for improvement, right? right? If we don't have policies relative to the conduct of investigations or employee behavior, that needs to be done. Number two, document findings. Uh, very often uh, investigations are not properly documented and reports are not maintained. And last but not least, is treating all people with respect and dignity. I tell my investigators, as I tell others in the profession, treat the people that you investigate and interview like you'd want to be treated or your family would want to be treated. Sure. That makes sense to me. Are there, are there any um, last thoughts that you'd want to leave our listeners with, Dean, that would want to really help them key into what they need to do? Yeah, there's a couple of things, uh, uh, Francie. Number one, the organization should set the tone at the top. Don't be an end run. When information comes uh, the way of the chief executive or those at the top of the organization, they should listen to it. They should also set the example. The organization should also communicate its expectations. Tell employees that you love them. Tell them that you care about them and the working conditions um, uh, in which they work. Encourage employee involvement and participation. Promote ethical behavior. And when an organization has a success, celebrate it and reward your employees. And I'm not talking financially, but recognize them for doing the right thing and the honest thing whenever possible. Those are my thoughts. It's a, you know, it's a real balancing act, isn't it? Well, it's a challenge because, you know, in one regard, we, we, I'm, I'm suggesting that we empower our employees and allow them to make business decisions every day, often while unsupervised. On the other hand, I'm saying you need to have an environment where you can monitor employee behavior and ensure that they're making the right decisions. So it is a balancing act. It's complicated and it's time-consuming, but it's got to be done. And everything needs to be documented. It's absolutely essential. There's a thing we say in the world of human resources, document, document, document. And in the worst cases we've seen, 
the documentation wasn't there. There was not enough evidence. There wasn't enough information, um, or it had been destroyed. So keeping good, good records, documenting employers' efforts, and, of course, documenting employee performance and behavior is essential as well. And along with document, 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 you want to verify, verify, verify. <laughs> yeah, trust but verify, as trust Ronald Reagan used to say, sure. right? Absolutely. Very true. Well, Dean, thank you for being on the program on this very important topic of addressing employee fraud. If you want to con- contact Dean Ferraro, go to my website at www.picdclassified.com under the show title, The Enemy Within, or you can always send me an email at francie at picdclassified.com. My featured sponsor this week is IRB Search. IRB Search is a proprietary online product for locating people, businesses, and their assets and was designed specifically by private investigators for private investigators, process servers, bail agents, bondsmen, recovery agents, and judgment professionals. The proprietary information provided by IRB Search is governed by state and federal legislation and laws that protect the privacy rights of consumers and govern those legitimate reasons applicants may use their services. Um, Their ad for IRB Search can be also found on my website, www.picdclassified.com, or you can contact them directly at 1-800-447-2112. That's toll-free, 1-800-447-2112. If you want to learn more about the organization where Gene is president, that is the National Council of Investigation Security Services, go to www.ncisss.org. And next week, December 23rd, Join me to meet Arizona's chief, or I'm sorry, Arizona's sheriff, Joe Arpaio, on December 30th. Private investigator Jacob Lapid will be speaking to us from Israel. So tune in again as we declassify more real stories from real investigators every Thursday morning, 12 noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific. It's PIs Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks so much for listening. You've been listening to P.I.'s Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.